Hello and welcome to Time at the Bar. How are we doing, Maz? <laughs> I'm alright. How are you, Floz? I'm very, very good. Good. And I, I think I was shouting then because I was I was waiting for you to go, Oh, my name is Florian Hodgkinson. It's a lot more nasal than that. You gotta, <laughs> just pinch your nose and you can do it perfectly. That's perfectly it's, accurate. It's uncanny, isn't it's it? It's ridiculous, yeah. yeah. So today, Floz, we're finally sitting down to record something that we've been working on for for quite a while. Yeah. I mean, and fun. we've been promising for even longer. The history of Trappist Brewing. We're going to be giving some background about what a Trappist is and, uh, you know... Their way of life. Their way of life. And then we're going to crack into some... Very carefully chosen beers yeah. for part one of two. And very two caref- carefully chosen beers for part two as well. Yes, oh yes. <laughs> right then, so to kick off with, I think you've got a few pointers for me, haven't you, before I go on an endless spiel about the joys of Trappist brewing and the Trappist way of life. Yes, I have some overall information about Trappists. So uh, first off, what is a Trappist? The Trappists, officially known as the Order of the Cistercians of the Strict Observance, or the OCSO. And so what's the OCSO the, stand for, Maz? Uh, <laughs> Order of Cistercians. I thought you were going to give it to me in Latin. No, I can't do the Latin. Don't make me do the Latin. That would be funny, though, wouldn't it? Oh, uh, OK. So it's Ordo Cistercianis Ensis Strictioris Observantiae. Observantiae. Okay. Well, I didn't do Latin. That's, I don't know about you. I didn't do Latin either. <laughs> we both went to a Catholic school and neither of us did Latin. No, no Amazing. I'm, I'm very pleased about that. Um, anyway, so it's originally named the Order of uh, the Reformed Cistercians of Our Lady of La Trappe, uh, but that was considered too much of a mouthful. So uh, it's a Catholic religious order of cloistered monastics that branched off from the Cistercians. Uh, they follow the rule of St. Benedict and have communities of both monks and nuns. Oh, hello. Yes, that are known as Trappists and Trappistines. Trappistines. Trappistines, not Trappistinis. Tiny little Trappists. As I was saying when I was reading my notes, I turned to Floss and went, they're called Trappistinis. I don't think that's quite right. I think you've misread that, Maz. They are named after uh, the La Trappe Abbey, the monastery from which the movement and religious order originated. Yeah, um, Simon. Before we go any further, I think there's a very important myth I have to bust. Busting a myth already, I'm are you? Bust, the myth, <laughs> bust those myths wide open. Um, so Trappists are not necessarily silent orders. I think this is something that people are often confused with. They are... Um, as within the rule of St. Benedict, they, they are expected to keep conversation to a minimum. So they generally only speak when it's necessary or when they're speaking about their subject. Their subject. It, yeah. So if so, as we will get into in a little bit, um, the various jobs they do around the monastery, they're allowed to talk about those or if they're talking about mm. prayer or whatever. Um, so the way of life of the Trappist communities. Um, Trappists, like the Benedictines and Cistercians from whom they originate, they follow the rule of St. Benedict, as I mentioned. They take the three vows described in the rule. Stability, fidelity to the monastic life and obedience. Mm-hmm. And I think you're quite good. I'm going to let you pronounce the uh, Latin, the next Latin phrase, well, because I'll I mean, Latin is a difficult one because you don't know when things are silent when they're not. Mm. So I'm going to go with ora et labora. So that is the um, 
the sort of motto of the yeah. Trappists, is it? I think it might even be an unofficial motto, but it's definitely what is, you know, it's entirely applicable to what they do, which is prayer and work or pray and work. Um, so that means that anything that they do within the, the monastery, as much as it might contribute to the sort of overall uh, like funding of the monastery or uh, the day-to-day running of it is always secondary to their vocation. Oh. Having said that, they have a lot of jobs to do around the monasteries and as we know, one of them is brewing. Um, there are others such as cheese making. Um, they grow all their own vegetables, don't yeah. they? Um, but the, the main one that we know and the ones that we associate are beer and cheese. Yeah, absolutely. So the purpose of creating those has always been not only to fund the monasteries, the daily running of the monasteries, but is also to fund local charities and also just the local community. Absolutely, yeah. And I know the significance of being able to employ people locally and boost the economy of the local area is a massive part of what they set out to do. This is highlighted specifically in the rules of St Benedict. There's a quote from it that says, For then are they monks in truth if they live by the work of their hands. Yeah, So that, that theme will come up again and again because it's the work, prayer, hands. Everything yeah. has to be hands-on, it has to be them doing everything. So how many Trappist breweries are there in the world? So I think the current count is 11. Yes, that's what I came up with. Yeah. Um, and I think some people say more and some people say less. We have just lost one in the in the brewery of Ackel. Um, but I know that in research you found two others that you thought were in that in that bracket, didn't you? Yeah, it was a little bit confusing online. So there are 11 across the world. There are five in Belgium, uh, which are Westmal, Westvleteren, Chimay, Rochefort and Orval. There are two yep. in the Netherlands. So that's La Trappe and Zundert. Yep. That correct. Zundert, yep. yep. One in Austria, which is Stift Engelsetz. Engelsel, yeah. That's Engelzell. good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one in the UK, which is St. Mount St. Bernard. Uh, they make Tint Meadow. Yeah. And there's one in the US, which is Spencer. Yeah. And then there's one in Italy, which is Tre Fontaine. Tre Fontaine, yeah. Um, and then there were two others, which I thought counted. Uh-huh. You told me don't. So Yeah, so now, and this could be a subject of debate amongst people, but you say now what you were going to say then. So um, there is one in France called Montecat. Yep. And then there's one in Spain, which is Cerveza Cardena. I imagine it's Cardena. Cardena. So, Flores, can you tell me what makes a Trappist beer different from an Abbey beer? Yes-ish. (laughs) it is still a confused one Trappist beer would be highlighted by the fact that the product must have been made within the walls of the Trappist Abbey itself right or the product must be made by or under the supervision of the monastery community the largest part of the profit must be spent on social work so that obviously involves basically they're they're putting money back into the monastery and they're working on things with local communities etc etc so it's more of a charitable element to it as well an Um, Abbey Abbey beer has no such necessity to do any of that. No. In fact, often half the time it's just a name alone. They buy the right to the name. So I'm going to use a little quote from Jeff Vandersteen's book on uh, uh, Trappist and Abbey's um, beer. And it's, every Trappist beer is an Abbey beer, but not every Abbey beer is a Trappist one. Um, Effectively, 
you know, to translate that down to something very even more simple, it's just one of them has a strict set of rules and the other one doesn't. So the Trappist beers, um, to be officially considered Trappist, they must adhere to those um, rules that you listed. And that's how they then get the Trappist authentication certificate yes which is the little little label you've probably spotted on a bottle of uh orval or west yeah. letter or it's a west six Mars. six-sided shape that says authentic trappist, trappist product, product which is obviously a huge honor um but as you said they have to adhere to those guidelines yeah. to qualify for that whereas the abbey beers they don't. can use the name of an abbey locally they can have bought the license to that they could be brewing on the site but it's completely secular it's, so it doesn't have to adhere to any of those rules at all and it can just be relative you know utilizing a name or to some degree it's almost fictitious you know mm. and so there is a certif- certified abbey brewers but even those do not have that same obligation like the abbey uh, when you see the beer Saint-Fion really good beers but they are not they're made by a family that are not monastic at all and it has it has no reasoning to But they obviously doff their hat to the Trappist yeah. styles, the, tra- the Trappist beers, yeah. those flavours that seem to be so synonymous with Trappist beer. So I think we finally reached the point where we can crack open a beer, which is what I want to do. Oh, and so I have thirsty. To... Oh, I'm so thirsty. So parched. <laughs> so what have we chosen to discuss for part one of the Trappist in part one, part one of Le Trappist Beer, <laughs> we have got a Westmal Triple, we have got an Orval, just Orval, and we have Trappist Rochefort 8. Excellent. Um, so, with each one of these, we're going to crack open and then give you a little bit of a history behind each brewery. Yeah, Or just... each monastery. Yes, exactly. So, what are we going to crack open first? Let's go, let's go big, but not too beefy. <laughs> Let's get this streamlined, I want delicious pale boy here. The Vesmala Triple. Excellent. So crack it open, Darlin. Oh. Ooh, did you hear that? Ooh. Beautiful. Sexy. Honey. But it's really dry on the nose as well. Yeah. You can smell you can clean. smell the attenuation, can't you? Yeah. You can smell that it has that dryness. And it's got a really nice sort of soft, bready, as you said, honey. I always get notes of you know almond paste you know going towards uh, marzipan and then as it warms up slightly and it aerates in the glass so i think that's when the banana starts to peel out <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah you can trust you'd to one. provide the puns yes how i just snorted it oh god that hurts <laughs> so the other thing about this beer is it's highly carbonated <laughs> so if you snort it it's it going to be painful <laughs> So, so how do you describe it on the snort? <laughs> She's not even trappist yet. <laughs> if only I had the excuse. No, I just decided that um, <laughs> snorting it was the best way to get it into my Ooh. bloodstream quickly. Yeah, you were desperate. For I was it. so desperate. So it promises so it all this. Yeah, this big. There's lots of things going on in the aroma, and so when you take a sip of it, you're expecting it to punch back with all of these different notes going on. But I do find you get subtle sort of like pineapple and sweet, maybe almost like stone fruit, maybe like a um, like a plum or something like that, just all in the mouth. And it's, it's very so smooth as well, particularly mm. as it's so dry on the aroma and up the nose. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's so smooth in the body. Yeah, I mean, that's that's I mean, that's why it's so, you know, basically world famous because it drinks like an absolute dream. Mm. Um, and for a brewery that has 
you know, only in recent times released its other beer back into the market. So three beers, but for years it was just relied on two beers. You just said, wow, you've built an entire um, brand sort of excitement hype machine based on two beers. Phenomenal. And that's a 9.5% beer and it it drinks like a lot lower. I know we keep saying this, but this is part of the digestive quality that the Trappist um, monastic brewers have tried to achieve because, you know, again, it still needs to be a simple, a simple pleasure, if you like, and it has to be digestible because it, most of these beers started their life out as a replacement for sort of, you know, maybe bits missing in their diet. So it needs to have nutritional value and it needs to have a restorative quality or it has to give you a little bit of energy. Am I right in thinking that, um, a lot of these beers were used as a replacement, food replacement during fat periods of fasting, such as Lent. Yeah, absolutely. And Lenten beers are still, um, I think they they have a heritage that clings on in a lot of the Trappist beers and Abbey beers. But where you can still see it actively um, in brewing in the brewing world is in Germany, where you still have sort of uh, sort of Fasten beers and Festen beers and Lenten beers and things like that. So. That is definitely the case, and some of these will have started out their life as a, as a way to get through those difficult fasting days. I mean, so that's why we chose to do it in East, you know, in the Easter period. You know, there's 40 yes. days and 40 nights of... Of drinking um, amazing beer. Yeah. <laughs> World-famous beer. That is the envy of many different brewing cultures. Yeah. Like, the fact that it's such high gravity while also being so smooth and sweet and drinkable. Come on then, history head. Come on then. Give me some history. Tell me about the brewery at Westmala. Okay. Or tell me about Westmala first and and then when they started brewing. When how did they get into that? How did they get into brewing? How did they get How did they get into brewing? Right then. Well, first of all, um, the Abbey was actually established in 1794 uh, by a, a group of exiled monks from France, as I was mentioning before. Uh-huh. Um, so they were living in Switzerland at the time. And obviously, you think about pretty much everybody moving by foot and by you know carriage and horse and stuff. You know, you don't get very far down the road very quickly. <laughs> so you know, to get to get to Switzerland was already a great achievement. Um, so, but yeah, they <clears throat> they headed out to establish a monastery in Canada. But they never got that far. And I think what actually happened is... Yeah, they, they really didn't get that far. No. They didn't no, get they, very they far didn't, at all. No, they were heading... I think they were heading to get to sort of Antwerp to go out the ports that way and, you know, right. sort of the you know, Belgium, Hooker, Holland, all that sort of stuff. So, but the one of the local landowners in Antwerp basically lured them into this situation where it's like, I've got this land you could set up here. So that's what happened. And they, they sort of set up, set up there... But then within six six weeks, I think it was, of arrival, um, they had to leave. Oh, why? Six weeks? Yeah. Within what did six... they do? <laughs> did they <laughs> just, like, no, offend uh, everybody in the nearby towns? It was due to the invading French armies. Oh. So this is going to be a, a repeat theme throughout all this. So, yeah, after that, though, uh, they've, they've sort of in exile for a while again, having only just settled. Um, but they returned in 1815 after Napoleon defe- was defeated at Waterloo. But they did not obtain legal monastic security until 1822. So part of the reason for all this was that obviously Napoleon was very anti uh, the church at the time. 
And obviously when he was defeated at Waterloo, that meant that they were able to go back in, especially being sort of expatriotic sort of French Frenchmen who had fled France to then be found in the next country along by a load of Frenchmen was probably going to be like, well, you're going to get murdered. Right. So obviously that's why they had to flee. And then once once that was no longer a threat, they were able to come back. But that's when the Dutch swept in. And hello, Belgium. We like you a lot. So you're, you're ours now. And so the, the Dutch king at the time, Wilhelm I, was not the biggest fan, but he did allow them small sort of gains. And eventually he uh, actually signed a royal decree allowing them to, first of all, return, you know, have the land and to, to stay there. And eventually they were able to establish fully because of the independence of Belgium when that came in. But in the meantime, they were allowed to drink beer, whereas most of them it was they could drink a certain portion of skimmed milks and waters, and that was about all they were allowed to drink. Um, so a lot yeah, of doesn't have the same appeal, does it? Not really, especially when they're blended. Delicious. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what one thing they proved from this is um, they were allowed to drink it for the for the courage of what they've chosen to do. Mm-hmm. So that sort of energy. Um, physical energy, the extra nutrients that they were getting from from the beer. And one thing that was proven by this was that they had no sickness in the monastic community, whereas all the other communities were struggling a lot with you know, ill health because if you're not having those nutrients replaced by other things, they were living a very chaste lifestyle and a very meagre one as well. So they didn't have many, um, you know, they didn't have access to lots and lots of hugely nutritious foods. You know, so they were very much living hand to mouth off the land, whatever they could get. So Belgian independence, as I mentioned before, actually was declared initially in 1830, but was not really truly ratified until 1836. And that's when it was stated to be true independence of Belgium as an official country. And that guaranteed the the monastery's future. um, And the priory that it was then was raised to abbey status. So this is the proper sort of beginnings of the Vesmala Abbey. So at that time, they were also building a brewery. And by about the end of the 1936, the year of uh, Belgian independence, they actually achieved that. And they were very blessed in the fact that they had two brothers from uh, the Netherlands. I'll say patters maybe instead, just so it's not confusing that they are not actually related. Um, Two patters who were from the Netherlands who had brewing experience. So they were able to start that without any sort of external aid. So with this brewing knowledge, they were able to brew their first batches of beer the other things that they were doing was selling the yeast to the bakers Uh, they were obviously trying to gain as much off the land as possible so agricultural viticulture so that you know the culture of wine and grape growing so they're very much living off the land as trappists are supposed to but they're also selling things that they were making off the land at that point already and the first documented sale of west mile beer was in 1861 and it was quoted in the book as brown beer Oh, okay. Brown beer and Father Benedict, who was the uh, found the founder of that of that order at the time, um, had two sons, and they were allowed to sell the beer to allow them to live from their hands, as we talked uh, about earlier. Ah, uh, yes. So I think this also means that they were one of the first sort of recognised Trappist monastic communities that were selling their beer as well. Ah, so this is another good reason for starting with this. This is why we're starting here. Oh, yes. And then after that point, they had steady growth all the way through the 1860s through to the end of the 19th century. And the income from their beer sales allowed for the renovations of the Abbey, which took place between 1885 and 1908. 
And also around that time, there was an annex uh, of the trap, the local tram line coming down from Antwerp. So again, the proximity to Antwerp is only sort of 12 and a half miles, I think. So it was really quite close to Antwerp. And so they had an annex come off the line, the local line to Antwerp, come right down to the monastery so that they could, first of all, get the supplies in. But also that's when they started selling beer directly out into Antwerp. And later on, this became a really good day out for the Antwerpen people. They would come out, get to the tram stop, have delicious Trappist beers. And so the phrase often associated with that is, you know, to visit the Trappist. And and that's basically, it doesn't mean going to see the monastery. It means going to the cafe at the tram (laughs) site. So where the cafe is now, if you go to Vasmala, is where the old tram stop used to be. That's long gone. But you're still basically in the place where the Antwerpers went for years to go and have their beer at the... I mean, that's the dream, isn't it? It's like um, a much better version of using the bus to get to and from the pub. Like, well, yeah. At least the tram is uh, <laughs> a bit more reliable. Yeah, and well, it seems quite romantic as well. It's also it? romantic, yeah. yeah. So as I say, they had steady growth. They now had a direct um, stop outside that was selling, sending beer into Antwerp and then further afield from Antwerp. So they were really starting to push their sales further afield. And so also, because their beer um, sales were growing exponentially, and they obviously had the cafe selling a lot of their beer as well, they needed to up production and so they invested in a new brewery so in 1897 new breweries completed and that was a 40 hectolitre brewery and at the time they sold most of their beer in wooden barrels in wooden barrels yeah so they were bottling at that point but nearly everything they were selling was going out in wooden barrels oh my goodness yeah it's kind of uh again very romantic idea love like a little a little pin of West Mala double just coming Ooh. through and you like tap it and beautiful Ooh. away we go <laughs> Yum. so obviously another theme that we're going to develop throughout this whole narrative is World War One, World War Two, halting and destruction of a lot of these abbeys and the breweries in particular so a lot of the time if the abbey escaped unscathed the brewery would be ravaged and they would obviously take away the copper was the primary thing that they did when of the course, German army yeah. was in there Plus, also sometimes they just settled in the abbeys to live and do whatever they wanted to. And they used the breweries because a lot of them had the skills to brew, but they didn't look after things because who cares? We're leaving. You know, where this is it. We come in here, we do what we want, and off we go again. So, as I say, World War One sort of halted the production and expansion side of the, of the business that they were developing. So when they reopened post-World War One in 1922... They were making their double beer, which I believe they were already making this beer, but it might not have had this name, and uh, and the beer extra, which was a pale 4.8% beer. So that had been a blonde beer. And the double was a double brown beer. So rather than just the brown, it's the double brown. Uh-huh. So you start to see some of those names creeping in, um, <clears throat> and that's where a lot and of... And the associated colour that we kind of still hold Absolutely, on to. because there was no written rules. You know, these what we should have done at the beginning is when we also talked about dispelling myths, is that the sort of Trappist beer world, or people's understanding of it, is it's myth-laden. Yes. <laughs> you know, th- these beers don't all have to adhere to certain things. And, you know, people go, oh, that's not to style. And it's like, there is no style. We've created style afterwards. And, you know, like... I think we covered it a little bit in our Vesplertrin episode. So, again, if you're missing that little chunk of information, go to the Vesplertrin episode. We discussed a little bit in that about yeah. what... Uh, the, this kind of idea that singles, doubles, triples and quads have a set 
ABV Absolutely. and colour. That and we bust that myth a little bit. And that's that without way. even taking into consideration that they were making their as we talked about at that time as well, like the singles, as people talk about patters beers that some people refer to them as refectory beers, table beers, enkel, you call it what you want. That was the majority of what they'd have been making for themselves yeah. anyway. So they weren't making, oh, let's have a double. Let's sit down and get absolutely shandies. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not what they were after I think doing. they'd struggle to get all the other jobs they had to do done if they were constantly shandies. Well, yeah, <laughs> certainly would. <laughs> Don't want to make a habit of it, do you? Oh, Ooh, dear. Oh, dear. Another oh, dear. terrible pun. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so they had these two main beers at that time. And obviously, noticeably absent was the triple. So in 1933, they registered the name Trappiston Beer, or Trappist Beer. Um, so that was already starting to sort of define a collection of beers that were made by Trappists. And obviously, it seems really obvious it was Trappist beers, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But it was an official term. Obviously, didn't become sort of law until much later on. So eventually, a blonde beer that they had sort of been playing around with for a number of years since about 1931 was eventually developed into the tr- into the triple, uh, which was a golden yellow 9.5% beer, and that's basically the same as the beer we're drinking now. And the thing about Westmall is that they're they're triple and they're double, although refined over these you know intermediate years to where we are now. They are effectively the same beers. They haven't changed enormously. The yeast strain is supposedly still the same. And as we talked about, I think, in the West Lutheran episode, the the Westmaler yeast still, to this day, is the one that St. Sixtus used for the West Lutheran beers and the Trappist Abbey, uh, as it was at Achel, still used it as well, and so as well as Westmaler. And they all coax completely different flavours and aromas out of it. And so that's the obviously the, the ingenuity of the brewer. So the yeast can do all sorts of different things when you play with it correctly. So I'm ready for my next beer. Anything else to say about this beer, really? Well, the only other things that I would mention about the delights of Vesmala. Very unique bit of branding on theirs. They've got the same as the um, as as Saint Sixtus with the little wrap around halfway up the neck of the bottle, which is obviously. Um, part of the bottle structure rather than it being paper mm. and they're very attractive aren't they you know the, the beer brands are just very strong very very stand out and have remained relatively unchanged for what the best part of a hundred years yeah 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 well i mean they've they've tweaked things over a period of time and i think really it still has very much stayed roughly the same um question for you then which beer do you think about when i say triple is it this? Yeah. Yeah. And, that, you know, to sum it up, that basically is, but this is the beer, isn't it? Because there were, I think there was only one example of somebody making that stronger pale beer before, and that would have been um, Henrik Verlinden's brewery, Dree Linden, which made a beer called, it would have been called at the time, Whitcat Triple. Now, when it's made by the brewery Schlagmoider, it's called Whitcat Peter, or I think it might still be called Whitcat, Whitcat Triple in the US. I'm not certain about that, though. But that was the first, quote, in quotation marks, maybe, the first sort of triple-style beer. And he had a, a strong relationship with the brewers at um, Vesmala, so they get the second triple-style beer. And now when I say that, I mean pale triple-style beer, because there is also a debate that before you'd call a beer that was dark and stronger than your double, your, your triple. triple. So it's the first so it's pale like triple the star X, beer. The XX and the XXX. X, exactly. And notably, there is no 4X mm. because 
I, I sort of had a guess that it didn't yet. really exist. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was that's point number one, and obviously that was I think they were designed to counter the sweep of Pilsner style beers that were ripping through Europe at the time, and obviously went on to entirely dominate the world. <laughs> Um, and so also, if I said to you, what's the archetypal double style beer? Westmall. You'd say Westmall double, yeah. 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 Um, and what happens if you blend the two of them, as? <gasps> trip Trap! Trip Trap, exactly. Oh. Trip Trap, half pastel or half and half, which we did a tasting of uh, the other day. So well, it was check- a few weeks ago now, but that's on our uh, Instagram. So if Check you go that out. It's a late, late night after a session, so you see me with my beer belly hanging out. And, and then you also insisted on turning the camera on me with my bright red face. Oh, yeah. Well, we look, we both looked very classy, you know. So I just got out of the bath as well. So there's wet hair bedraggled all down the side of the face. But that's what we're into. Just, you know, we're classy people doing classy yeah, things. You know. So that's Versmala, and that's Versmala Triple. So <clears throat> I think it was time to move on to another delicious beer. Yes. Please, please. <laughs> um, so next, we are moving on to the Rochefort 8. And we have, again, a little bit more history. But first, we're going to do a little tasting of this one again. So classy with your little... Oh, swish this and a This is flick. why we need to... I learned from Flitwick. As soon as we can, we need to uh, get a camera on you because you've got such flair. <laughs> and you have... Obviously, no one at home can appreciate just how much Floz gesticulates while he's talking about beer history. He's so enthusiastic yeah. about it. Lots of clearing of the throat, lots of moving around. You probably hear tapping every now and again. That's that's my drummer's feet going wild on the floor. <laughs> um, yeah, basically, a very rest, restless person, arms flailing like an octopus, dragged out of the water. Oh, that's, <laughs> a, bit, that's a bit of a bleak analogy. That's how I see myself. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. Of course I don't. I see you more like a little bush baby that's just like bouncing around. <laughs> He's had a little Cheers. bit too much. <laughs> Never had too much. Never. Okay, so Rochefort 8 then. Oh, <clears throat> I mean, okay, so that's raisins and cinnamon and... I think hazelnuts. Oh, yeah. There's a it's little like... sweet cocoa note. In yeah, there I was going to well. say chocolate as well, like just a little cocoa. So, kind of like, imagine sort of Nutella. Stewed red fruit, maybe? Nutella pancakes currants. with raisins on top. Mm. <laughs> that sounds delicious. You think it's a breakfast beer? Mm. 100%. <laughs> now, this is glorious and it has a stunning colour as well. It's just off, off leather mahogany. Um, so, it has a nice, sort of deep, deep amber hue. And I just think this is a stunning bit. I mean, I of course I do with Westmarle Triple as well. But I think I have a real soft spot for the for the Rochefort Eight. And again, I love the Ten. But and I used to session on the Ten, which sounds like an evil thing to do. But now I think it's replaced in my head that sort of it really has. It's the epitome of balance for what it is. This is nine point two percent beer. And again, like the Triple, it just drinks so scarily easy. Mm-hmm. And to me. I just think out of their range, that up until last year was three brown beers effectively, all based on the same recipe with varying degrees of different sort of candy sugars and spices. And I also believe they're the only brewery that uses spices out of the uh, out of the Belgian Trappist brewery. Oh, so anyway. they actually use spices. I think as they a use a little adjunct. bit of coriander. Um, oh. There might be something else in there. 
Uh, it's more noticeable without the layers of deep candy sugar and sort of aged, sort of oxidised, well, mm. subtly oxidised, dark sort of malt characteristics. But again, most of this colour is not coming from malt. This no. is coming from the use of candy sugars of differing colours. So. And that's funny, isn't it? Because actually I would have expected that to be malt-based colour. Yeah. But, I, I mean, <laughs> a year ago, we did a brew together. We did. We brewed a quad. And we used, what, two 25-litre... Just one entire 25-litre drum of of, uh, dark candy syrup. Um, And it is like treacle. It comes in, pours out like a black treacle. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. So good. But that's interesting because I I would have just totally assumed that this was coming from the malt. No, so, and again, with that, you know that we put a little bit extra depth of colour in because we... We just it was a, we did two single infusion mashes, mm. so there's not a great deal of complexity of flavour being developed at that point. So we're just trying to develop a little bit more subtle flavour, just to go with it. And so we used a couple of different speciality coloured malts to b- boost that flavour, basically. Mm. Otherwise, I'd have chosen not to because you can achieve it all through sort of multi-step infusion mash. So that's the different stages in which you're activating enzymes. And that's where you get a lot of that complex flavour that you get with these Belgian beers. So again, with this one, nice and dry. um, uh, But I feel like, I suppose, probably hard to compare them because we're talking about a triple and a not triple. Ah, Exactly. What what, what do you class it as? What do Rochefort beers get classed as? Because otherwise, basically, everyone says that this is a quad and their tens a quad and the other one's just a massive double, which uh, you could almost argue this is their triple. Mm. Because if we actually look at the history, nothing says that the triple had to be pale other than the fact that West Mala is our, our sort of ballpark figure of what a triple has to be. Triples are normally also sort of distinguished by a slightly greater hop presence obviously that dry bitter bittersweet dry balance so there tends to be more sort of hop character real balance of that sweetness and bitterness in between and um obviously we look at that pale factor which doesn't necessarily have to be the case so this one is quite nutty like you were saying the hazelnut that you get in the aroma Mm. it's it's a lot more apparent in the main uh body of the beer isn't it though it's got that almost um nuttiness that you get from more old school traditional sort of british bitter sort of style yes beers. exactly that's exactly what i was thinking yeah um which i it does then set it apart from the best mile uh triple because that one was definitely more there was a fruitier element yeah. to that one that was a bit more like you said like you were saying pineapple and yeah sort of like softer stone fruits softer the, so they're almost fresher stone fruits and fresher fruit flavors these are more stewed and aged sort of you know sometimes desiccated mm. you know those types of and then as we say a lot more uh nut overt sort of nuttiness uh going on as well mm. i mean so, I, I i love the 10 but I love ten. I think I could drink the eight all day. Well, you could, you, you, could try. you could try to. You, you could want <laughs> to. You could have the desire to, but you'd have the falling down capability of a fainting goat. Yes, I would. <laughs> I would resemble a fainting goat. And wouldn't we all? Okay, so whilst you're going to top us both up, mm-hmm. he demanded nicely, um, <laughs> subtly. Let's talk a little bit about the Abbey of that is Rochefort. So the Abbey was established in twelve thirty. 
initially as an as a nunnery called Secure de Notre Dame, then it became a monastery in 1464. So nunnery first, monastery later. Let's skip forward a whole period of time so that I can marry it up with the others. They were forced to leave in 1794, once again, the same as the year that Vesmala were evicted, uh, by the invading French troops. But they were brewing by 1795, if not earlier. So there's definite proof that they were brewing by 1795 and more than likely earlier as well for their sustainability and for the sort of, you know, for the nutrients and health element again. And the other thing that they were doing at the time was they were growing hops and barley. So they were growing the raw ingredients for making the beer themselves. So how many breweries, sorry, how many uh, abbeys were doing that? Do we know whether any of the other ones we have today were doing the same, same thing? Again, without me trying to learn a bit of French and Dutch and German and going into the old sort of... Um, archives. The old archives to find this information out. What I can see is that a couple of them were doing it at various different times. Obviously, it was well established in Germany already to do both those yeah. things. But I can't see any, any proof positive or negative around the sort of abbeys in Belgium and the Netherlands and France do it. It would make sense that they were. Mm. I don't see why they wouldn't be. Um, because, again, to live from your hands would surely make sense to do that. But obviously not everywhere it was easy to grow things like hops. And yeah. large parts of Belgium, it has been great for growing hops, you know. And you've got a flat, sort of well-irrigated landscape yeah, that was perf- of sort of perfect for it in place. You think about Poporinga, the area um, not far from St. Sixtus, West Flitteren, beautiful for growing hops. And everywhere you go is... There's hop vines flying out of the ground everywhere. So, you know, I imagine a lot of them were. I'd love to make learn a lot more about that because I think it'd be really interesting to see how much the um, terroir of the hops that were being used could have informed some of the flavours and mm. even development of a certain style or, you know, style, as we say, yeah. uh, with a massive air quotes. Yeah, absolutely. So the Abbey was plundered by locals after they'd been driven out. And this is another reoccurring theme. Um, of course, you know, it's easy to look at that and go, that's outrageous. But also a lot of the local communities were incredibly poor. Mm. were often on the verge of starving, you know, in very, very difficult situations. But also when somebody leaves a load of building material around for you, I mean, we don't do it nowadays because there's laws on what you can just pick up off a roadside effectively or just, oh, look at that building. Oh, it's falling down. I'll take it. it. It belongs to somebody. But at the time, that wasn't the case. wouldn't have been seen of as course. the case. And when you've got a massive, huge, beautiful, well-faced building material on your ha- on your hands, you, on your front door, you go, I'm having that. So I imagine a lot of houses in parts of Belgium, you sort of go around, oh, it's basically big parts of abbeys. Well, I mean, you see evidence of that in the UK after yeah, the what, Reformation. And it's for the same reasons, abbeys isn't Abbeys were torn apart and churches were torn down. And yeah. and then the, the closest village to where the abbey used to stand, yeah. you can walk around and you'll see this, like these huge stones incorporated into houses. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, sometimes just sat on roadsides and all sorts yeah. of things. So, you know, that's obviously, you know, it makes a lot of sense. So... In 1798, the property itself was confiscated as a national asset to be sold. So that is obviously the land and the buildings, what was left of them. Uh, And, you know, at the time they would have sold it off brick by brick. But for some reason, that didn't quite happen. And so the monks were able to return in 1887. So quite a chunk of time later. But the reason they were able to return is because uh, a former army chaplain called Victor Sini, uh, so he attempted to re-establish an abbey on the site. And so he managed to rally 
monks from Achel and Notre Dame de Saint-Romy, and they re-established an abbey on the site. So at this time, the abbey was buying beer and lambic from Brussels and from other local breweries, which included Chimay. But they started brewing in 1899. The beer that they were buying from Chimay, though, was not for just general consumption. The Chimay beers at the time were known as beer forte. Obviously, from a basic, even misunderstood translation of the name is like strong, fortifying. strong, stronger beer or fortifying Fortified. beer. And the beer at the time that they were buying from them, that fortified beer or, you know, fortifying beer, was was used exclusively in the hospital, the in the um, Abbey Hospital. So they they got beer when they were ill? It, yeah, it was restorative, and it had a huge effect on, obviously, making people feel positive <laughs> alongside the, the, the genuine nutritional quality of it. You know, we talk about it being liquid bread. and Imagine getting Rochefort on the NHS. <laughs> <laughs> Should we, should we petition them for it? Yeah, I think that properly fund the NHS first, then we'll start asking them for yeah, beer. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And we should do it with Tint Meadow because we're in the oh, UK. Oh, yeah, so, absolutely. Well, Tint Meadow on the NHS. Yes. Yeah. That would make you anyone I go in for their you, jab. I <laughs> prescribe you five drips of Tint Meadow per Tint. hour. Ah. Uh. Uh, which means you can save them all up to the end of the day and have one, one before you go bottle. to bed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I went drips. I was thinking it was like a, an IV sort of situation. I thought you were going to say five bottles a day. I was like, <laughs> yes, mate. I am there. You know, slice me open. It's a cure-all. It's like, it's, it's like the medieval. <laughs> it's a cure-all. You know, it's, it, it's all-encompassing. Yeah, just take it for everything. Yeah. Feel sad? Take it. Feel happy? Take it. <laughs> Drink beer. Okay, so post-World War One production and sales soared. Um, they were advertising and they had direct delivery, which further aided their rapid, rapid rise. On the flip side, post-World War II, sales actually decreased due to the improved Chimay beers. So that sort of, not we hadn't talked about it yet, but that level of competition between the different sort of Abbey beers and the Trappist beers obviously has a huge, huge knock-on effect on each other. Um, um, but this was actually a positive in disguise because it, it forced Rochefort, first of all, to look at what where they were going wrong. So they had to improve their quality as well. And weirdly, Chimay offered to help them do that, which, you know, when are you going to see that in a competitive market? It's like, yeah, we're doing better than you, so we'll help you to do better. But, but what? It's Hello? almost a bit sardonic, really, isn't it? It's a bit like... <laughs> oh, we'll help oh, you get lads. better. Come on, lads, let's, let's work on your beer. But... One of the huge significant things about this is that the legend Jean de Clerc, who in brewing history anyway is a very significant figure, um, he wrote some incredible texts on sort of uh, brewing science and really like from the ground up, he's a very important person in, in the world of brewing, in the world of Trappist brewing, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I am going to do a little write-up on Jean de Clerc because I think he's a very interesting chap. So I'm not going to keep banging on about him in this, though, because, you know, there's no point. So look out for a blog post from Flaws. Something very, very exciting and sexy from (laughs) Flaws. Something to help you get to sleep at night. Um, But this chap was particularly significant um, across the board of the Trappist breweries and outside of that for improving their sanitation, their hygiene, you know, things as simple as just going you know you got this huge you know how you've got this huge heap of sheep shit over here that's right next to your well 
maybe don't do that because it's seeping into your water table and then you're pulling directly from that. And uh, So, you know, you think yeah. about toxins getting in everywhere and not everything... So he kind of came in and brought the chemistry. Yeah, and he brought a, you know he brought a chem- chemistry background and applied brewing science. He said, "This is what you need to do, and this is what you shouldn't be doing." So obviously, when he came in, the hygiene improvements was the massive thing. So the sanitation and his micro- the, the microbial control were the most significant points he had for them. And and again, at the time, the beers were known to be very up and down. Mm. So he really managed to get them to streamline and refine all their processes and tidy everything up, just be cleaner across the board. This is obviously enormously significant for why we think about Trappist breweries being of such high quality in this day and age, because what they ended up with was standards across the board, because, you know, they're sharing this information between them, sharing yeast strains, this, that and the other, that they actually all brought their game up together, whereas other breweries weren't doing that. Yeah, their quality control is obviously, Mm. like you know, light years ahead of everybody else. Yeah, in many ways that is entirely the case. And, you know, so this is in the 50s, and now obviously we'd like to think it was long before that, but they still were making high-quality beer, and, you know, the monasteries and abbeys were making high-quality beer way, way back compared to what a lot of other people were making. But this is almost that final step in refinement that takes us to modern brewing, where we have that real sanitary approach to it. So mid-1950s... Uh, a beer that is now known as Rochefort 8, the beer that we are drinking, was originally brewed, and it was brewed for New Year's Eve. And it, then it would be brewed sort of annually, and then it just, I think the demand for it just spiralled out of control. And... I mean, I would love to drink this at New Year's. And bring in the New Year with this, you couldn't go too far wrong, could Bring you? in the New Year with a case of Rochefort 8. Oh. Yeah, each. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's do that next year. Yeah. Let's do it. So you won't hear from us again. <laughs> <laughs> and then later in the 50s, the third beer was added to the range, which was the 10. All of that range was made up of dark beers at the time. So you had three dark beers. And actually what happened is they removed one of those beers and replaced it with another dark beer. <laughs> <laughs> so you ended up with three slightly stronger dark beers. I want to say that the the six obviously is nowhere near as dark. It really is a very sort of sort of ruddy amber compared mm. to this, where um, this is a lot you know sort of darker. As I say, it's that sort of that deep leather tobacco sort of colour. So sales tripled by the end of the nineteen fifties. The nineteen fifties was a great a great decade for them. And then in very quick succession, they got rid of their cheese production in nineteen sixty five and. Basically, by the 90, late 1980s, they had sort of got rid of all their agricultural activity. But if I just take a step back, in the meantime, they had got rid of their le- labels. So they stopped labelling their beers with the names that they had, like Special and Merve. They now became known by the numbers. So the numbers are based on Belgian degrees gravity, and I will talk a little bit about that, I think, in the next episode. But they also replaced the bottles with enamelled bottles and went on to the coloured caps with the number on, which is part way to being the thing that we think is, you know, is completely synonymous with Rochefort, mm. is those coloured crown caps the, with the number on. Yeah. I'd love to see an enamel bottle from them, though. Yeah. That, I mean, because when you started talking about removing the labels, my initial image in my head was um, the Vesperatron just yeah. having the crown cap be the, the label in itself. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Contain the information. But um, actually... Yeah, like to have an enamel bottle. I mean, obviously we know the benefits of having no light penetration. That's like mm. 
Um, but but they, I bet they were oh, really beautiful. I'd love to see those. Yeah. Well, I mean, they probably looked a bit like the sort of faux effects, you know, delirium. The delirium. Yeah, yeah. From De Hoyger. So 1980s, as I said, all those other agricultural sort of streams of income were eventually put to the sword. They stopped them, which is more significant of the fact that the beer was doing well enough to them for them to stop that. And then for the very end of the 80s, they actually reintroduced the labels. And that was also the time they got rid of the enamel bottles. So you ended up sort of two steps forward, one step back. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you ended landed with what we sort of relatively like what we see now. So finally then, 2020. So final point of intrigue, re Rochefort, was something that we went and out of our way to make sure we had, which was... The triple. It was indeed. Oh. So the first golden, pale, stronger beer that they'd done for 100 years. 2020, they released uh, a triple extra. So as I say, that was 100 years since they'd first released a beer, you know, since they'd last done a beer in that sort of style. And it was the first beer that they'd made since the 1950s. And this beer is a triple. So they've finally changed their range from three dark beers to three dark beers and one one, one pale fella. It <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a film, doesn't it? Three dark beers and one blonde. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and we were very lucky to try that mid-pandemic. Yeah. Just, you know, in that little sweet spot where, where you things could were just open. go out, but not really. Yeah. You, you could, could go, go, go to a, a pub if you, or, you know, queued up online for days um <laughs> no, I no, don't no it wasn't quite as savage as that but no we went to a place called the strawberry thief in bristol yeah. which is an excellent belgian yeah. beer bar yeah yeah strawberry thief beautiful place and um we got to try it there i think we got the last bottle didn't we we may well well they it wasn't said, the last one it was a penultimate one it was a penultimate one did we have one each I think we did, yeah. Uh, well, you got to, haven't you? You know, yeah, I've, I've well, got a big mouth and a big, big heart and a big stomach. Frankly, I'm not sharing. <laughs> yeah, I think it's more that way around. Really. <laughs> <laughs> None for you, sir. So, yeah. Um, and I definitely want to get hold of some of that again. Well, so now that is a beer that they're also not saying this is the finished product. They obviously worked on it for a period of time. I think it's been in development for quite a while. Mm. Um, but even now they're saying, let's put it in the market to see what the feedback is. And hopefully they got plenty of feedback because I think it was a very, very good beer. Very enjoyable. Yep. Very much in the Rochefort ilk, but, you know, obviously if you've only tried, as we all have, only tried their dark beers, you know, it's a little something different with the uh, the pale, pale beer. Again, you'll find our review of that on our Instagram. Indeed you will. Yeah, I think... That something I'm already seeing a pattern in is that the nailing down of the the idea of what a Trappist beer is, the world's image of uh, Trappist beer, has happened in the past 100 years, or certainly since the First and Second World War. Yeah. Something really big has changed, and the war will have changed a lot, yeah. as far as like uh, people moving, people bringing new ideas, and... Um, also, the world opening up a little bit more mm-hmm. in a, in an odd way. This uh, this kind of you know the creation of the EU, for example, yeah. will have been able to uh, help to distribute what these abbeys had to offer to the world. This is very very true, and I think that has been a massive thing in recent times when I think they started to struggle um, because of the lack of uptake of new novices, and obviously mm. the monastic community is is not growing it is dwindling no, absolutely also if we go back a little further than that you obviously the industrial revolution and that spread across um you know europe 
and the effect that had. I suppose also another thing to bear in mind is the technological advances, which we've um, talked about previously, Mm. in the ability to create pale malt, which hadn't existed until, what, the latter half of the 1900s, Mm. you know. Um, Well, no, exactly. And then it's with everything that goes with that, you know, looking at... The fact that the sacrometer, the hydrometers, you know, came in, so you could you could not waste as much of your potential sugars, etc., etc., etc. As you Which go on, which is obviously on. so important in Belgian beer, is mm. this like understanding of uh, how additional sugar can help to bring the um, percentage up without, but also keeping that body streamlined, exactly. so you don't go, oh, this is a big chunky boy in my mouth, <laughs> <laughs> chunky boy in my mouth. All right, love. Oh, you can keep that for the outtakes. A big viscous, heavy, sweet beer. Yeah, exactly. And so it does streamline that. So it's not a big chunky monkey in your mouth. Just trying to make a giggle with it. I'm forcing the point. We're opening the next beer. Let's force the issue. Right, I'm going to clean up my glass somewhat with this. Give me some of that water. Right, and so last day. Orval me. Orval. Go on, top us off that lovely, big, thick mousse. Now, I'm going to put it out there right now and I'm going to make myself really unpopular. I don't really like Orval. So this is this is still on the younger side. Now, the first thing I'm going to raise with Orval is, as far as most of the world knows, they've got one beer. Yeah. And in reality, they've got two beers. Oh, okay. So, so they have the Pity Orval, which is uh, mid-strength, sort of, you know, almost like British cask special bitter strength beer, four and a bit percent. Um, that is distinguished by having a green label. So a green label on when you see the glassware and mm. it's served on draft, I think, at the cafe. And then the standard one on the on the glass has a blue label and that is 6.2%. But that beer does slightly change strength over a period of time because one of the significant things about this beer that we will be talking about shortly is it has two yeast strains in it. Now, you said taint your favourite. Mm, yeah, I... I... I know this will make me unpopular, but I it, it is my least favourite of the uh, Belgian Trappist. And as far as you know... As far as I know, I haven't tried every Trappist beer there is, so so far it's my least favourite of the Trappist beers. And where do you think it ranks in mine? Um, I would say one of the top ones. Yeah, you. somewhere near the very top. Because yeah. you love a, a bretty bit of magic. Yeah, so now we've alluded to what the... Uh, second yeast strain in it is, which is Brettanomyces, which takes its name from sort of British yeast, Brettanomyces. And actually Orval is also a bit of a sort of an Anglophile's uh, version of a beer. So it's a it's a Belgian understanding of, of British beer in a way. Now, now that you probably, a lot of people disagree with that, but where it comes from is based on old British beer. And the same was applied for a lot of Belgian drinking in sort of the 1900s. A lot of the beer styles were sort of British-centric and German-centric. So that that waffle done with, what are you getting with this? Well, it's funny you talking about British and German-centric because actually on the initial sip, there's this kind of metallic taste which I associate with very northern bitters, usually Mm -hmm. ones that have been pulled through a sparkler, something that sits right in the head of the beer. So you literally, you've just got that first sip in your mouth. You're drinking through the head mm-hmm. and you just get this little little tang that I always, I say metallic, but that's not really the right 
word for it. I suppose it's like a zestiness, isn't it? Yeah. But I mean, um, I think some people see it as metallic, and that could be a matter of taste at any given time, or whether that's just what your taste buds' inclination is towards. For me, this is one of these sort of great hop forward beers. And now people won't go, well, you know, that's that's so hoppy. Well, it's not going to come across as that. But it does have a, when it's fresh, it does have a real hop bite. And it is very crisp and it is very zesty. And it is, to me, it is that sort of bite of black pepper and sharp lemon zest. Just very clean. And I think it's probably a similar association because it is, it's going to be a Eurocentric hop. But they all have that more earthy, spicy characteristic earthy definitely i get that a lot and i mean another instinct for me to say is um kind of musty horse blanket sort of yeah thing no so that's that's your yeast in here that's what's happening that yeast is starting to take hold because this bottle is already four months old right because i was going to say this is on the fresh side and i know that the breath is supposed to come out so much more the older it is yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely love it when it's completely fresh and the hop mm. character is incredibly beautiful and the, the bouquet and the floral quality in the nose is, is amazing. Because that definitely appeals to me more and I think I have had fresher bottles than mm. this and gone, oh, okay, I like this. Yeah. But it's the older it gets and the more that that kind and then, of yeah, mustiness comes out. Absolutely, and it is. It has a certain, it's sort of a cellar quality, like mm. an old, you know, an old building with an old wood beam cellar. You Which is not smell a, that. It's not a terrible flavour to No, have. but it obviously doesn't quite not... tick tickle your fancy and it doesn't quite make you go, oh yeah, this is what I want. I think it's something I would like in a in an atmosphere I am within, not necessarily mm. something I am consuming. No, I can food. understand that. So it has a slight common commonality with um, sort of young uh, Lambic, where it's not really very massively assertive, mm. but it has a sort of lemon zestiness a little bit of sherbetty note in it, a little bit of earthy, musty, that Bretonomyces is creeping in. So some people have favoured points in which the Orval beer cycle goes. And I mean, I know I do. And generally around about the three-month mark is where it starts to really sort of kick on with that sort of Bretonomyces getting, you know, starting to dominate the sort of palate and, the, you know, the aroma. Um, but as I say, really, really fresh is great. And also, some points like nine months to to twelve months, it can take on a really excellent form. But it really does depend on um, how you keep it mm. and where you keep it. So, to me, I get sort of that real strawberry, lovely strawberry uh, note that sits perfectly alongside like a leathery, um, sort of relatively standard things that we think about with Brettanomyces, leathery and sort of tobacco, sort mm. of ever so slightly oxidised characteristics we yeah. think about or Brettanomyces, where it's taken on that earthy. Um, sort of musty, cobwebby sort of aroma that we think about. But all the while, it has this really, really nice grass, lemongrass sort of uh, note in the background that I think really cuts through and stops that just being like, is this wet soil? Mm, I definitely think that it's like, once I've had a few sips, once I'm like, you know, halfway through this glass now, I'm definitely getting more of that strawberry. To me, it's like Mm. strawberry leaf. It's like, it's Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 more ribbon, isn't it? It's more... You know, it's something that you get with black currants as mm. well. And that's definitely more appealing to me, you know, and it definitely has more fresh, like a fresh characteristic to it, yeah. which helps me to kind of move past the initial mustiness, yeah. which is obviously what's what's putting me off and what's putting my palate off is, mm-hmm. is this mustiness that, I don't know. 
But again, it's personal palette, and I think that you know it's something that's worth talking about always is that we could sing the praise of a beer but somebody else not, might not like yeah it. exactly other people might not enjoy these and things. and this beer is you know it is a polarizer mm. and also within that it can even be polarizing within people that really like it as to when it's at its best and when they actually like it and when they don't actually i've definitely heard people say that they prefer old orval to fresh orval yeah and, and then some people that go like me that go i like it really fresh and i like it quite a bit older and nothing mm. in between because it sort of as the freshness dies away so the the hot hop aromas and the lovely sort of juicier sort of qualities of the malt start to die down it gets a bit muted as the breast and mice is sort of they sort of cross over if you look looked at it it's like a, a, a graph yeah, yeah a graph there's a point where they cross over and at that point it's at its most neutral in my mind mm. and then suddenly something else kicks in to replace where the big hop aroma was it's now replaced by this big uh, Brettanomyces fruity driven aroma mm. along with that sort of extra sort of powerful mustiness which i think is really really attractive um and so to me that's why it works best very very fresh and quite a lot older. Yeah, lovely. Right, let's okay. let's have a let's have a drink of this, and have a long long chat. Not a long chat, don't worry. Give me the factoids. And I don't mind the yeast going in as well because it's a delicious yeast. So Orval, first of all, I mean, you highlighted on my pointers, you know, that I was like, all oh, right, yeah. So what's Maz written? Need we say more? Well, absolutely, need we say more? From the name alone, if with a rudimentary understanding of French, you've got the words or and val, so the valley and or gold. So the valley of gold. And the quote that I will get onto is very mythologized as to what the wording is. But we'll go back a little bit and start by saying that the abbey was established in 1132. It's quite a so, chunky bit of time ago. And this is it. I think that we always think about tra- Trappist beers being so, so very old and ancient, which mm-hmm. is why there's this reverence around them. And, uh, you know, this kind of, you know, referencing as well. Yeah. When we talk about beer, we talk, we reference back to things that, um, you know, are kind of considered staple styles and staple beers. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh, yeah. yeah, to have... Uh, it, f- for anybody who, who uh, you know, with basic understanding of, of abbeys, you know, hundreds of years old, get best part of a thousand years old, some yep, of them. Absolutely. So, this is this is very significant. So then you kind of think, well, brewing must have been going on for just as long. And it's like, well, brewing was happening. But yeah. f- to say that whatever was being made on the site is the same was the same then as it is today, would be Well, I think this, this is the important thing to highlight, and I'm pleased you have as well, because also it goes along with this long-standing myth about how old these are. But just because I'm saying now the Abbey was established in 1132 doesn't mean that it's basically the same thing that we're talking about. Mm. Because actually what I should be saying is an Abbey was established on the site in yes. 1132. Exactly. So this is the important thing. And when you read lots of different texts about these, you know, these abbeys and these monasteries, it's actually that none of them say the same dates. None of them say the same groups of people. Well, I suppose it's hard to, you know, maintain historical yeah. uh, documents from, uh, you know, 10... Well, this is very, very much the point, isn't it? And then it, you get uh, an oral tradition that goes with it where mm. people are handing down this information as to what actually happened, which... 
you know, again, actually helps to contribute to this rather beautiful myth that goes around the whole subject, which is why, oh, look, these hundreds of years old, they've been brewing this beer. So, well, they might have been brewing a dark beer 200 years ago, but it certainly ain't that. But getting back on track. So, yeah, they had be- there had been an established abbey on that site since 1132, which was Cistercian monks. But there had, in fact, been a monastic presence since 1070 in the form of the Benedictines. So, 1076, so the early, sort of an earlier story that goes with the site is Mathilde of Tuscany. So her husband had just died. Oh. Yeah, so she's very sad. I'd be sad too. Squish, squish. Squish, squish. squish. Um, uh, So she's mourning her husband and she ends up in this beautiful valley here. That we're talking about. I think I'd run away to a valley if you died. <laughs> just, just, I'd, I'd wear a big floaty dress, and I would just weep and run through fields. You sure you've not a time traveller? You sure you're not Matilda Tuscany? Because <laughs> this is exactly the photograph that they had of her. <laughs> the photograph. Yeah, from 1076. Yeah, was her looking wistful and, and in a long but, floaty dress. So. The story, as I remember it, so it could be slightly wrong, but this is what I've been telling people for years, um, the, the Ministry of Misinformation, potentially, um, is that through, you know, in, in her moment of grief, she's sat by this, this pool, which is obviously a natural spring, it's a, it's a well, and she, she drops her wedding ring into this, into this lake. Okay. So I've said pool, and I've well, said well, and, and spring, lake. and lake. Is that how many different it's, sources of water there were in the They are area? all basically the ones that are quoted, but the one that is most adhered to is the fact that there is a natural spring, therefore there's a well somewhere nearby, mm-hmm. but it's a lake. And she drops a ring into the lake, and what do you think happens next? A fish pulled it out! A fish jumped out with the <gasps> ring in its mouth. So now she had implored God to return this ring to her, and in that very moment this fish jumped up with the ring in its mouth and so she had cod for dinner no um, mm, so <laughs> so she got her ring back and Aww. i think at that time she that was when the you know we are establishing a, a monastery on this site because obviously god has given me the ring back yes the one it's ring it's a sign that ru- from god yeah. yeah the one ring that ruled them all and, you know, and then with the fishes bring them and the fishes did bring them all the fishes did bring them <laughs> and in the darkness Founded them all. <laughs> and the other oft-quoted element of that is that somebody said that she was heard to say, for indeed it is a, truly a valley of gold. Yeah, so that is also where supposedly the name... So the, the name comes, comes from the, the story Valour. and the image, which mm-hmm. I heard, uh, wanted, I, I was going to ask you about anyway, because we'd already talked about Vesmal's image as well yeah so we talked about the image of Westmall. so on Orval there is a fish with a ring in its mouth yep and so now which I've never I don't know if it's just new to me or whether they've introduced it it's embossed but it's also yeah embossed on the bottle which I've never seen before so that might be a relatively new addition yeah indeed but yeah, I, um, we'll talk about the branding of these in a bit because they are probably the most sensual and immediately identifiable of all branding for monastic beers 
So anyway, that's the bit of the legend of Matilda Tuscany. It's certainly very romantic. Yeah. You could see why it would be the basis of a story for a, a monastery yeah, or brewery. Yeah, absolutely. I know, you know, it has it has all of the, you know, damsel in distress, the ring of power, the... Uh, it's got everything that a good fantasy yeah. novel is made of. Anything that, you know, J.R. Tolkien or... C.S. Lewis or... or What's his name? R R R R R R R R R R Martin. Martin. So, seventeen ninety three. After a period of looting by the French army, the Abbey was set ablaze and destroyed. I mean, this still sounds very Game of Thrones slash Lord of the Rings. Grr Martin. Martin. Um. So it was set on fire. Yeah, it was not quite razed, but it was definitely structurally damaged beyond repair. And so what happens when the army stops looting and it's, you know, burnt pretty much uh, down to the ground? Do the locals come in and take some stone for themselves? Yeah, that's yeah. building material. Yeah, You're going to take it. I mean, I'd totally build my house out of Yeah, but I mean, wandering down to the valley and then dragging it up the, the side of the valley, it's going to be hard work, isn't it? Oh, really? Is it if they do oh, that? I don't know. It's that. I'm just saying it's a valley, isn't it? So. I just, I'd chuck it on a raft down the river. Ah. Sensible. You've always got a plan, so it goes Let's to the see. sea, yeah? So I can build so my house by the sea. Oh, bloody hell, it's gone. <laughs> no, I'd be on the raft. Oh, right, okay. With a horse. With a horse. The horse would be like kind of... Do you get more posh when you say the word horse? I think I do. Three sugar lumps for my horsey. <laughs> and then I say glass. Glass and bath. Give us a glass of that. Uh, look, three sugar lumps my horsey. Oh, I'd love my horse. So I can glass it in the head <laughs> on the puff. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I don't um, know where so... <laughs> my vocal home is. Uh, but after looting by the locals, the land and ruins were acquired by the de Haren family. Oof, that's a mouthful. Yeah, that's a it, tongue twister. That was probably definitely one. not the way it's supposed to be said. I think I just wanted it to sound like that in this very moment. <sighs> Donated the abbey to the Trappists of La Grande Trap. Where have we heard about them before? <gasps> Shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's um. right. It was the, the original c- Cistercian order. And they were reformed in 1664 at that site. I mean, life is just a circle, isn't it? It is. And that is obviously where the name Trappist comes from, is La Trappe Abbey. So 1927, first monks leave the Abbey of Sept Fons to resume monastic life at Orval. They were led by Marie-Albert van der Kruysen, who's a man who had formerly had experience as an architect. And the reason that's significant is because when we talk about these beautiful designs... He was one of the people that made sure that having established that they couldn't rebuild from the ruins that were there, instead of trying to do anything with them, they just left the ruins as a tribute to the sort of history of the site, moved up the valley slightly and rebuilt with a new design, a new master plan as to how the new abbey was going to look. And so the next character to add to that is also very significant is the architect Henri Vess or Vass and but as I say, between them, they said, no, we can't do anything with these ruins. But also, Henri brought this wonderful quality to the table, which is responsible for what the modern branding looks like. So all in one fell swoop, he designed the visual and structural elements of the new monastery and abbey there, the glassware and the bottle. And it's funny because like now that you tell me that, you can see this 20s influence. It's really, like, among all of it, there's a real kind of art deco feel, when, yeah. particularly when you look at the glass. As you say, everything, it's even this label, you know, the yeah, but strength and sort of old school, sort of almost, um, what so would you've you got say this, it is? Like, 
Art Deco and yeah, Art I th- Nouveau. Yeah, I, I think it's Art Deco more than Art Nouveau. It is more Art Deco, you're right, yeah. Um, particularly when you look at the glass. And That's your clear giveaway. I mean, if you haven't seen a picture of the glass before, you can certainly see that on our social Just media. Get yourself the glass, um, get yourself the beer, and go and look at pictures of the beautiful valley with the monastery in it. It is stunning. It yeah. really is. It is enough to persuade somebody that might not be particularly religious that there is obviously some some greater connection there, you know, mm. that people are really giving something up to a, a greater being. Yeah, and I think, I mean, obviously that's the intention of any big religious building, you know, a cathedral or, a, yeah. you know, a monastery, mm-hmm. an abbey. They're, they should be impressive when you walk up to them and they're supposed to make you feel very, very small yeah. and make you feel like there is something grander. But certainly just the, the skill and the quality that has gone into the design of these things really does make you feel... Uh, you're in a special place, doesn't it? You're in a special yeah. place, exactly. And I wish well, I whatever could... your religious belief is, you're yeah, in a special or none, place. Uh, at all, yeah. So due to limited finances, they decided, first of all, to start up cheese production in 1928 to allow them to fund the new Abbey development and building. And the other thing that they did is they, after a very long debate after whether they should just sell the water from the well of Matilde or whether they should utilise it to make beer. Which one do you think prevailed? Hmm, I wonder. Would you rather buy a bottle of water or a bottle of beer? It depends whether I'm in the desert or not. Mm, yeah, well, you're not really in the <laughs> desert in the middle of Belgium, are you? No, you're never in a... De- it's it's the anti-beer desert. The anti... <laughs> There's beer wherever you go. I, I, I have a feeling that the beer prevailed. The beer did indeed prevail, um, which obviously is a blessing to the world at large because we have the fantastic Orval beer. So the brewery was founded by lay people initially in 1931 as the monks did not really need to take on any more tasks. They obviously The building work was being done. They had all of their usual chores and things that they were doing anyway. So And the real reason initially for it was to fund the, the building of the abbey. So they let... Lay people take on that work and brewing cracked on in style. So initially the brewery is established with a series of shares as well, which is an unusual quality um, back then and obviously particularly unusual in a Trappist monastic brewing situation. And over a period of time it was designed that the shares would then return back to the abbey. And the last share was transferred back to the abbey in 1987. So full-time brewing commenced in... 1932 and like uh, when we were talking about Westmala earlier initially it was all just in wooden barrels so with these guys it was all in wooden barrels and it was sent off to its final final sort of distribution point where at which point it was then bottled from there so it allowed for first of all variable quality mm. but also it helped them out because they didn't actually have to to foot and front the bill and all that and I mean certainly when you're messing around with something like Brett and then you're packaging it at a ah. point where you can't control the packaging. But this is a point in chief. They didn't know that they were messing around with anything like Brett at that point in time. Uh. And that speeds us on beautifully to the next point. So initially, there was no monks working in the brewery until 1949. And at that point, two monks that they had went and trained at Chimay. So I think they did about a month's training. It was like speed training to be a brewer. And then back to the, back to the abbey to, to crack on with their new, newly found skills. And the same year, the legendary Jean de Clerc, again, became advisor 
at Orval and cleanliness and sanitation were brought to the brewery. Now this had a really profound effect because obviously for all the good he was doing there was some bad element that was unknown at that particular time and that was that as they cleaned up the tanks they went around cleaned up all the fermenters they you know organized things got it all cleaned down all the walls but as they cleaned down the fermenters in particular and scraped away the beer stone beer stone if you've ever home brewed or you know you're a brewer you understand it is it's like a hard layer of calcium oxalate so it's a bit like Sort of like, like the like equivalent the, of lime scale that you get in, in your, kettle. your kettle, that yeah. sort of thing. And so that builds up over a period of time. Now, if you think about what the lime scale would look like inside your kettle, if you just kept letting it, let it build up, obviously mm. bits of it flake off. Yeah. But also, as it builds up, it has little indentations, which is oh. a perfect little housing for various microbes to go and live in that are a lot harder to get rid of and a lot harder to kill with you can't just kill them with certain chemicals or really hot water so they ended up in the removal of this beer stone actually completely changing the taste of the beer and a lot of the locals were like this is not the same beer i don't like this anymore so it lost an element trying to make it so they went back to identify what was that unique flavor they were obviously getting and they identified it to be from there Mm. and at that point they realized that they had a wild yeast strain getting in which we'd sort of say now would be Bretonomyces predominantly um, and so what they did is they actually went around the brewery and tested all sorts of points you know outside and in corners of the brewery and this that and the other so that they could identify what this yeast strain was and eventually they had it they could isolate it hmm. and as you said wild wild yeast Bretonomyces as we talked about earlier um, was that yeast strain predominantly so when they cultivated that they were able to then use it at a point that they chose, and obviously now it goes into bottles, hence when the reason if you grab one of those Orval bottles, you think, this is bloody heavy, isn't it, for a 330ml bottle? It's reinforced. It's like the same, uh, it can take, take the same pressure as a champagne bottle. Ah, of course. So that's because Bretonomyces continues to crack on and chew its way through any residual sugars that most um, ale strains and lager strains, will, you know, they're, they're done. They've given up at that point. That will just keep going. It will take it bone, bone dry. And so it just continues to consume sugar. And and at the same, same time, it's kicking out all these beautiful, funky aromas. And that's where we talk about the dustiness and this musty, lovely, fruity sort of, you know, bruised pineapple and all sorts of interesting notes that come through there. And that's to some degree where that sort of strawberry is the Bretonomyces and the sort of sweeter stewed malts in the, uh, in the Orval come from in combined. And so that is still added to this day at the bottling stage now. So, so that's it's more huge, controlled. Yeah, more controlled so you can be more reliable as to whether... And your kit's not completely infested with the uh, Britannomyces. You're clean, clean brewing and then controlled inoculation. spiking inoculation, exactly. So apart from that, we've mentioned the Petit Orval, which was also made 4.5%, and that's the one with the green typeface on the glass. Only other things I want to mention about Orval, because there is a whole list for all of these guys, and I just couldn't choose which bits to say. Mm. We ended up setting a few things. But I believe they were the first nationally distributed of the Trappist of the Trappist oh, okay. in, in Belgium. Yep. And also, they have a female head brewer now. Yeah, in interesting itself. that um, to invite a woman into what is obviously a very male space um, 
as mm. far as religiously, not yes, yeah, yeah. nothing no, I know to do saying. with brewing, of course, because, you know, as we've established, brewing historically was done by women. So it's, it's interesting that you've gone from women being home brewers and just creating the beer and it just being part of their daily jobs uh, to men taking over as soon as it was... Uh, you know something that could make a profit and could be industrialized um and then you come back round to yeah especially as as i was saying the this very male dominated you know they they cloister themselves away from society but then to invite people in to help them make money to keep themselves going and then to invite women into that space yeah. as well it is really interesting and i i'm yeah I find that really fascinating that that has come forward. And it just shows that there can't be any prejudice against who you're, you know, it's all about skill. It's all about the person, the right person for the job. It's the best hire. And that's exactly what they've proven there. And again, the other thing is Orval are a little bit different, I think. They all think differently from what people would expect. Mm. And I have to remember there are people, you know, they're, they're just humans. But again, Orval do stand out a little bit from the crowd because of their approach. You know, if we sort of to a degree say that they make one beer I know they make two but as far as the world knows they make one beer with one glass bit of glassware and one bottle that has barely changed in you know best part of a hundred years and you know they they have a different approach you know they're, they're making a slightly sort of British style beer that has got a an old weird accidental British yeast strain in it Brettanomyces and it's, it's very different whilst the rest of them it generally is a cleaner production approach you know mm. and so um, some people love it some people hate it most people pretty like it quite a lot yeah yeah it certainly stands out from the other bre- from the other beers we've had today mm. and from any of the other Trappist beers yeah. that I know and certainly the ones we will be trying next time I think that this the Orval stands out the most yeah, even those. I'd I'd agree with that. Yeah. So there we go. I think that's um that's part one done with. Part one. So we've explored a little bit about um these breweries that were established in Belgium, a little bit about um what Trappist means yeah. and um why it's important that uh, beer is produced in a Trappist community. Yeah. And yeah, I think that we've probably picked the three best examples of. The range. Yeah, I've got, we've gone for a bit of the range. We've chosen three Belgians to start with because it seems to be the crux of where this love and legend that goes with Trappist brewing goes comes from. We've also gone for ones that are very significant of their style. Mm, you know, you have a triple. Course. We have mm, unknown, but Rochford, you could say that's a double. You could say it's a big double. You could say, you know, whatever. And Orval... They all sort of stand out in their own different way, don't they? They're also all fantastic, you know, fantastic breweries making really high quality products. Mm. And they've got an interesting overview of the history, which I know we've condensed down horribly foreshortened, but had to be done. Um, And so in the next episode, we're going to highlight breweries that are from outside of Belgium and the spread and move towards the newness. The uh, The more modern approach. Well, yeah, the more modern approach to a degree, but also how you can do things differently and put mm. your country's signature on what is considered to be a one, there's a single approach to it. Yeah. So looking forward to that. And we'll have a little bit more history that goes with it outside of it. And there'll be a few more pointers about what sort of highlights the, the independent approach of the Trappist monastic brewing. Excellent.
thank you for listening to Time at the Bar and um, please tune in next time for part two. And uh, as always, get, get out. out. Thank you for listening to Time at the Bar. If you have any beer recommendations, uh, suggestions for episodes, or you just fancy getting in touch, then please email us at tatbpod at gmail.com. If you use social media, then please follow us on Twitter at Time at the Bar Pod or Instagram at Time at the Bar Pod. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>